The Wiz Kids had won it, Bobby Thompson had done it, and Yogi read the comics all the while. Rock and roll was being born, marijuana we would scorn. So down on the corner, the national pastime went on trial. We're talking baseball, Klazuski, Campanella, talking baseball. The man and Bobby Fella, the scooter, the barber, and the nuke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially Willie, Mickey, and the Duke. All right, everybody, welcome on back to Baseball History 101. As always, I'm Patrick DeVault, and I'm joined by my colleague, Matthew Carter. Hey, everybody. Today's episode, we've got a uh, topic that's a request from our comments from a couple episodes ago on Spotify. This guy was an outfielder and first baseman, born in 1920 in Pennsylvania, career batting average of 331, 3,630 hits, 475 homers, 1,951 RBIs. He played with the Cardinals from 41 to 44 with a brief hiatus. Came back in 46 to 63. 24-time All-Star. Three-time World Series champion. Three-time NL MVP. Seven-time NL batting champion. Two-time NL RBI leader. His number six is retired with the St. Louis Cardinals. He's in the St. Louis Cardinals Hall of Fame. He's in the Major League Baseball All-Century team, and he was voted into the Baseball Hall of Fame in 1969 with 93.2% first ballot of votes. Today we're going to talk about Stan the Man Musial. Um, that pretty much sums it up, man. That's a Hall of Fame career with just those stats and accolades. Yeah. Um, first ballot, too, you know. So he was born Stanislaw... Franciszek Musial, Franciszek, I believe, Musial. Yeah, Franciszek. Yeah. Um, he was born November twenty first, nineteen twenty. He passed away in two thousand thirteen. Um, he is widely considered to be the greatest and most consistent hitters in history. He was twenty two seasons in ball, all of them for the Cardinals, and um, three thirty one over the course of your career, man. That's what else more can you ask for. Um. And he set records for hits and RBIs. Games played at 3,026. And at bats, 10,972. Runs scored, 1949. And doubles. And his 475 career home runs at that point ranked second in NL history behind Mel Ott's total of 5 of 11. Seven-time batting champion. He was named the NL League's MVP three times. And was a member of three World Series championship teams. And major league record for the most all-star games played, tied with Hank Aaron and Willie Mays. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll let you take over from here, Matt. That's pretty sporty. That's pretty sporty. I mean, so he was born, Sam Usual was born in Denora, Pennsylvania, on November 21st, 1920. And Denora is in the western part of Pennsylvania, you know, near, uh, kind of near Pittsburgh, somewhere in that area. And so he was the fifth of six kids. Four girls and two, so like you know, all together his family was four girls and two boys. And his dad was Lucas L U K A C Musial, and uh, his mother's name is Mary. And so he was a Polish immigrant who always referred to his son by the Polish nickname Stashu, 
which it's spelled S-T-A-S-I-U. And his mother was of Carpatho-Russian descent, which is a part of a, it's part of a Slavic, uh, I guess part of one of the Slavic ethnicities, which you know, that's, but that's a topic for another podcast, not this one. <laughs> Don't really have time to explain that. You guys can look it up, but you know, anyway, like most people, you know, like most people growing up, he was the son of immigrants, you know, like growing up, you know, people just in that time frame in the early 19th, I'm uh, sorry, early 20th century, you know, that most people's parents like stands were immigrants from different countries. You know, probably came from Ellis Island. There were other places. It's like, it's like my grandmother's parents or my grandmother's grandparents, I guess, were Irish and our name has evolved. Mm-hmm. Part of that's from persecution of certain things. And my grandmother was told, don't tell anybody you're Irish. That kind of thing. She still denies it. <laughs> oh, man. It's just, you know, it's just how it was back then. Even, even people of Irish descent, even today, people of Irish descent get picked on. It's not, you know, it's anyway, but again, that's another story for another, that, that's another podcast for another time, you know. Um, so Stan frequently played baseball growing up with his brother Ed and other friends during his childhood, and he considered uh, baseball Hall of Fame pitcher Lefty Grove as his favorite ball player. Yeah, he played in Lefty Grove, played for the Philadelphia A's and Boston Red Sox from 1925 to 1941, and he won like exactly 300 games in his career. One of the best pitchers of all time, for sure. It, and um, Musial also learned about baseball from his neighbor, Joe Barbal, a former minor league pitcher. And um, when Stan was enrolled in school, his name was formally changed to Stanley Frank Musial. It sounded more American, you know. Exactly. Yeah, which a lot of people did that back in the day, you know, especially, you know, just some people can pronounce their names better or just sound what they consider normal, you know, they would just do that. They would change their name to sound normal. Don't make yourself stand out. Yeah. They just want to fit in. You know, everybody wants to fit in. Blend in, in, act normal. Yeah. And so at age 15, Musial joined the Denora Zinks, which was a semi-professional team managed by Barbal. And in his Zinks debut, he pitched six innings and struck out 13 batters. All of them were adults. So, you know, none of these guys were like teenagers. He's a teenager striking out adults, you know. I mean, as a – and, of course, you know, like I said, we we think of Stan Musial as an outfielder and a first baseman during his major league playing days, but he started out as a pitcher back in the day. I mean, this just shows how versatile of an athlete he was, at least on the baseball diamond. He could pitch, and he can hit, and he can field. I mean, he could do anything. You know, he was just a very talented man. Absolutely. There's a cool yeah. fact about this team he was on, too. Mm-hmm. Um, one of his teammates was Buddy Griffey, father of King Griffey Sr. and King Griffey Jr. That's really cool. I didn't realize there was a Buddy Griffey. Yeah, and um, in this book that I own about a biography about Stan Musial called Stan Musial in American Life by George Vexey, there in the picture section of the book, there is a picture of the Denora baseball team. That may be the Denora Zinks. And there's a picture of – it's a team picture of Stan Musial and Buddy Griffey. They're in the picture together. And I'm showing Patrick the picture. And Stan's up here in the top row. 
And then down here is Buddy Griffey, which in this picture, he's the only African-American in the picture. So he, he's not hard to find in the picture. But, you know, it's just, I mean, how cool is that? You know, <laughs> for those Stand of y'all at home, Denora is spelled D-O-N-O-R-A. If you, I bet you can find that on Google or something like that if you mm -hmm. dig hard enough. And think it's, about this. It's also oh, funny. Griffey Jr., I think you were about to say this. Griffey Jr. Mm -hmm. shares the same birthday as Stan Musial. Mm -hmm. Yeah, November 21st. <laughs> and they're both born in Denora and they're both Hall of Famers. I mean, you know, unless, I mean, of course, being a big cities, some big cities like San Francisco, New York, they got a lot of Hall of Famers that were born. Denora probably like, has the highest rate of Hall of Famers per capita. Yeah, with two. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so have a small town like Denora get two baseball Hall of Famers in the town is just. That's something special, man. You well, know. that tells you about that small town style of life, man. A lot of them small towns, they live and die by Friday night football and their high school sports. Mm -hmm. You know, and sports is life growing up. Your life growing up is to play for that high school. Like, I remember being a kid. You're my age, Matt. I remember, like, the Marvin Stone era of Grissom basketball. Mm -hmm. You couldn't get – you couldn't find standing room only tickets to Grissom basketball games. Yeah. And they won a state championship with Marvin Stone in 99. I mean, you know, he was just a talented player. Yeah, you know? and um, there's a handful of guys I still see around town. Cedric was on that team. Uh, he's a firefighter now. Uh, what's his name that played in the NFL, that played at Grissom and then went to Bob Jones? Uh, Reggie Ragland. Reggie, his brother, was on that basketball team. Manchild. Oh, yeah. That was, a, that was a heck of a basketball team. Yeah. Ronnie Stapler had a – had a good team there, you know. Yeah, he got kind of done dirty by the politics of high school sports, and they went and won multiple girls' state championships in Gunnersville. So, yeah, and they went to Westminster Christian and won a state championship with their boys' team. So, Stapler was a coach when my uh, dad was in school. So, yeah, I mean, <laughs> Stapler, <laughs> but now he just re he just retired too. So he's he's got over like eight hundred wins and multiple state championships. So, you know, he'll be in the AHSAA Hall of Fame soon. Yeah, if he isn't already. Speaking um, of basketball, Stan also played basketball. Yes. And he was offered uh, to play scholarship basketball at the collegiate level by the University of Pittsburgh. At the same time, they had State Cardinals were scouting him as a pitcher. In 37, they offered him a pro contract after a workout with their Class D Penn State League affiliate. His dad um, initially didn't like the idea of a son pursuing a baseball career, but reluctantly he gave consent after – Stan's mom and Stan were like, come on, dad. You know, yeah. they, they lobbied him. And uh, he also credited, he also uh, credited his school librarian, Helen Close, Close, K-L-O-Z, for um, yeah. pointing out that baseball was his dream and advising him to pursue it professionally. And, it, and what was then a common practice, the Cardinals didn't file the contract with the commissioner's office until June of 38. And that preserved <laughs> his amateur eligibility. And he was still able to participate in high school sports, leading his uh, basketball team to a playoff appearance. And then after that was over, he reported to Class D West Virginia, the Williamson Redbirds. Nice. And so, excuse me, uh, his rookie year in the minor leagues was with Williamson in 1938. And it was a period of adjustment both on and off the field, which, you know, you're playing away from home. It's going to be an adjustment for anybody. No matter what the time period, you know. 
dude, me going and playing college ball was different than me getting out of my own bed and going playing in a high school game. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, you're, you're in another town, you're living in a dorm probably, you know, uh, it's just different. You know, it's just, it, it, you're experiencing new things, you know, you're getting out of your shell, you're being your own person and doing something different, you know, like home out. games, home games. I was getting out of my bed road games. I was getting out of a hotel bed. It was mm-hmm. different. We didn't do that in high school. No. And so I can't imagine know, at the professional level. Yeah, I can't especially imagine. then because they probably weren't staying in the nicest places because those no. owners were cheap as hell. Yeah, you're playing in the minor leagues in the 1930s. You're not staying in ritzy hotels, especially in Class D, uh, Class D ball. You're not doing that. You're staying at some nickel available. nickel a night hotel room. Yeah, what whatever's available in Williamson, West Virginia. You know. Um. Now again, he began so like he, so coming into the minor leagues, he started as a pitcher. And um, he began he began gaining more in depth knowledge about baseball strategy while posting a six and six win loss record and a four point six six ERA to go along with his two fifty eight batting average. So you know, decent numbers for a rookie. You know, I mean, just nothing too bad, nothing too great, but just you know, decent kind of what we kind of expected from this rookie in Class D ball. And, of course, you know, off the field, he's experiencing homesickness while learning to live live comfortably independently on a $65 per month salary, which in 2022 dollars, that's $1,110. But, again, you know, it's just part of the thing. You know, you're going to – when you go off to do something away from your home, you're going to experience homesickness. That's not much less money than minor leaguers are making now. No. I'm not sure after all this – CBA stuff just happened where the minor leaguers are getting more rights and stuff. But when I was working for the Biscuits, that was probably nine years ago. Mm-hmm. That's about what those guys were making. Yeah, about sounds about right. Now, the thing is, though, he finished his high school education before returning to Williamson again in the spring of 1939. So he got that out of the way. He has a diploma, a, a high school diploma, which is always a good thing. Um, and then in the 39th season, he improved his uh, pitching record to nine wins and two losses. He lowered his ERA a little bit to 430, still pretty high, but, you know, still improvement. And he had a 352 batting average. So, you know, improvement all around. 352 is I, pretty baller, man. It's pretty baller. While going nine and two as a pitcher, I mean, like he – I don't know how many games he played in uh, – Williams, Williamson in 1939, but still it's like, you know, he's kind of like a class D ball Shohei Otani, if if you will, you know, by pitching pretty good and hitting pretty good too, you know? If, I mean, that's the only thing I can equate to it, but maybe it's kind of off, but to me it sounds like he's a class D Otani, you know? <laughs> yeah. I don't know what you think about that, Patrick, but it's just, that, that's just my comparison, you know? His, his, I can't find his minor league stats, so I can't say how many games he played in. Yeah. Um, I mean, we could try a baseball reference because that's I know where I'm, they, that's what I'm looking at. Yeah, but but that's so we, far back they probably weren't keeping stats too heavily. Yeah. I don't know. It's just. Well, I see from 1930. So I found. So I found oh, it, there is minor league stats. Yeah. It doesn't show his 1938 season, but it shows 1939. 
According to this, he says he played 23 games. 1938, 26 games. Okay, 26 games, 1938. So 23 games in 1939, according to baseball reference. 25 hits and 71 at bats, three doubles, three triples, one home run. Doesn't say how many RBIs or stolen bases because, you know, or strikeouts or walks, but he hit 352. His on base percentage was also 352. And his slugging percentage was 521 with an OPS of 873. So, again, you know, much improvement from 1938. You know, he got the first year jitters out of the way. You know, he's focused. He's doing great things in minor league baseball now. So, so 1938, it was 26 games, 67 plate appearances, 62 at bats. So, five walks or whatever happened there. Um, 16 hits, three doubles. No triples, uh, one homer, six ribbies, three walks. So there had to be three hit by pitches or two hit by pitches or something mixed in there. Seven strikeouts over 16 or over 62 at bats. That's a good number. Yeah. Um, he's hit 258, mm-hmm. 22 total bases, one hit by hitch, and one, uh, SH. What is SH? I should know that. Sacrifice hit. That's it. Yeah. And then his pitching stats in 38, he went six and six with a four, six, six ERA over 20 games with seven complete games, 110 in pitch, 114 hits, 75 runs, 57 earned runs, 80, 80 walks. Wow. 80 walks. (laughs) <laughs> 66 strikeouts, six hit by pitches. His whip was 1764. His hits per nine was 9.3, so averaging just over a hit an inning. Mm-hmm. His walks per nine was 6.5. Strikeouts per nine was 5.4. And strikeouts per win was 0.83. And then in 39, he went nine and two mm-hmm. uh, with a 4.3 RA, 5.18 runs against per nine. Um, 92 innings pitch, 71 hits, 53 runs, 44 earned, still 85 walks. Yeah. <laughs> and then when we get to 1940, he has a lot more walks and a lot more innings pitched. And in 1940, 223 innings pitched. The rest of his stats are on the same plane. 145 walks. Wow, <laughs> I guess well, I guess walking might have been more of a strategy back then. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, we'd have to, you know, do game by game, but that that's almost impossible. You walk that many people in a season this year, even his lowest. You're not pitching. No, that's more than that's more than Blake Snell this year, and he led the National League in walks. How many do you have? Ninety nine, I think. As I recall, as we talked about the last episode, I think it was ninety nine. Yeah, that's a whole bunch. Well, then, no, again, 19... he, then again, he probably threw more than 200 innings, so maybe we're not too far off. Yeah, so, I mean, it just really depends. So, 1940, he moves up. Well, he's still in Class D, but he moves down to... Florence, right? No, no, no Daytona Beach, Florida. Well, yeah, in the Florida he's, State League. Yeah, playing for the Daytona Beach Islanders, where he developed a lifelong friendship with their manager and former Chicago White Sox pitcher Dickie Kerr. That third year of pitching stats was from this. Okay, yeah. Yeah, it just uh, 
was from baseball reference or yeah. 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 And so also that and his pitching schools, excuse me, his pitching skills improved under the guidance of Kerr, who also recognized his hitting talent, playing him in the outfield in between pitching starts. Smart move, Dickie Curve. Smart move. <laughs> Otani move. It's an Otani move. Yeah, exactly. You know. Um, and also that year on May 25th, uh, mutual married fellow Denora resident Lillian Lil Labash in Daytona Beach. And the couple's first child was uh, born in August that year. And then during late August of 1940, mutual suffered a shoulder injury while playing in the outfield and made later made an early exit as the starting pitcher in a 12-5 playoff game loss. And for a while, Musial considered leaving baseball entirely, complaining that he could not afford to support himself and his wife on their $16 a week pay. And luckily, Dickie Kerr talked him out of quitting. Thank you, Dickie Kerr. <laughs> and he even took the Musials into his own home to relieve their the financial burden. To repay the debt, Musial bought her a $20,000 home in Houston in 1958, which was equivalent to like $200,000 in 2022. In 113 games, he hit uh, 311 while compiling an 18-5 and win-loss record that included 176 strikeouts and 145 walks. So he may be walking 145 guys this year, but he struck out 176. So he's still... Striking out more guys than he walks, so that's that's a plus, you know. And eighteen to five, that's nothing to sneeze at. I mean, that's better than Otani, you know. <laughs> right. And so the next year, you gotta think too. Otani played on a bum team. Yeah, I, and now he's the a- Angels baffle me. You have two of the best young talent. Well, I guess Trout's not young anymore, but you got some of the best guys in the game, and you can't do nothing with it. Get out of here. Yeah, and we've talked about know, them before. Yeah, and the Angels did nothing to, you know, counter uh, the Dodgers' deal for Otani. How are you going to counter that deal? You, you can't because the Dodgers have so much more money than the Angels. <laughs> I was kind of hoping the Braves were going to back the Brinks truck up because they're owned by a corporation. Mm-hmm. Dude, yeah, the way that but... contract structure, that's not something for this episode, but that'd be an episode for us to do, like, history of baseball contracts and how they're structured. Yeah, but the best part was – the day before Otani made the announcement that he was going to sign with the Dodgers. Oh, you had the old uh, the guy on Twitter talking about, oh, yeah, Toronto. There's a plane going to Toronto. It wound up being one of the guys from Shark Tank's plane. <laughs> yeah, right. And John Morosi, who does That's the MLB Network, he made that tweet. And I and then I felt it did like when, it, you know, on that Friday he said the tweet about showing Otani being on a plane headed to Toronto when that wasn't the case. Dude, I'm sure he had a terrible weekend that weekend with Shohei said, no, I'm going to the doctors, man. Wasn't even on the plane. <laughs> I'm sure Shohei's not mad about not having to move either. Yeah. And you're still on the West Coast. So yeah, if something if you something happened. Going from the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim to the Los Angeles Stars. You probably don't even have to move. No. Yeah, you're probably good. And if something like if something happens in Japan, like if you know there's a family emergency, he's Still on the West Coast, he can get to Japan quicker than being on the East Coast. And then so, they then they pulled the Brinks truck out and paid that Japanese pitcher. Oh yeah. Uh oh shoot. It starts with a Y. Yamamoto. Yeah, I, I, I can't pronounce it. 
Yeah, I know exactly. What you're about, about, yeah. And he uh, he has the largest contract of any major league pitcher ever. Hadn't thrown a major league pitch yet. Let's see what happens. I hope he's worth every penny. I hope he wins twenty games and finishes fourth in the Cy Young because they don't like his bat bap. <laughs> so I was talking with Sonia's granddad. Mm-hmm. For those those of y'all at home, Sonia is uh, my mm-hmm. lady. Uh, her granddad. We were in a, we were in Georgia for Christmas over this last weekend. And he was asking about all this stuff. And I'm like, dude, I think Japan might be the next Dominican Republic. As far as pitching goes, at least. Because Otani happened to be able to pitch and hit. But as far as pitching goes, I think Japan might become the next Dominican Republic. I can see that, you know. And MLB end up with the Japanese headquarters as well as to their international headquarters in the Dominican. Yeah, I can totally see that. Yeah, you know, especially with uh, him and, and uh, Kodai Senga and the, the Mets. And, you know, I mean, they're getting all these pitchers now in J- from Japan more than, you know, back, you know, even. Yeah, with, it used like, to be a trickle of a Korean guy here or there. Um, you had, uh, what's his name with the Red Sox for a minute? Uh, oh, Dice K. Masuzaka. Dice K, you know. Yeah. Um, Dale Nomo. Yeah. You know. But it seems, just, it seems like. Um, Otani's kind of got everybody with a little bit of Asian fever. Mm-hmm. If that's a fair way to state that, if that's not appropriate, I apologize. Yeah. It could be worse. You could have said yellow fever, which is, I think, worse. Well, you said it, not me, buddy. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. But, yeah, God we love, Sho- I love I love Shohei, man. He's great. Anyway, so let's get back to Stan. Stan I'm, looking forward to, I'm looking forward to him coming back from Tommy John better than he was before. Yeah, it's hard to be, it's hard to be better than what you already were, but no, most of more, most of the time people come back from Tommy John better. Exactly, like if Tommy you rehab Tommy, it right. Yeah, like Tommy John himself. You know, I mean, the man who had the surgery to begin with, the first I one. To, did I ever tell you I met Tommy John? No, you met Tommy John. Yeah, um, my coach at Auburn Montgomery, QV Low. Um, he's still the all-time single-season ERA record. And career mm-hmm. ERA record at Auburn. Mm-hmm. His uh, star on the Auburn, or not star on the Auburn Walk of Fame, his his brick on the Auburn Tiger Hall of Fame is right up front of Skybar. He was my coach at AUM. Um, and he played pro ball with, he got drafted by the Cubs and whatnot, and he graduated Auburn in 68. Mm-hmm. And he played uh, pro ball with the Cubs. And Tommy John was one of his friends. And Tommy John was in town for a speaking engagement in Montgomery. And he, Got Tommy John to come by the field and hang out with us during batting practice for a game one day. That's awesome. That's that's so cool, man. You met the man who made the surgery happen. You know, he signed one of my teammates' Tommy John scars, and he got it tattooed over. (laughs) (laughs) I can see that. Thanks, Tommy John. No, that's the greatest (laughs) thing ever. Right, yeah, like I, I had sir, I had the surgery named after you. Doctor Andrews did it, mm-hmm. signed my scar, and he went and got it tattooed over. That's that's amazing. <laughs> oh, kids these days, or those. No, days. that's funny. That's just a that baseball is, guy move right there. That is great. Yeah, that's that's pretty cool. So, Pakistan, Pakistan, usual. Nineteen forty-one, he moves up to Class Double A. To the uh, Columbus Redbirds in in Columbus, Ohio, in the American Association, to begin the 1941 season, though manager Bert Schotten 
and Musial himself quickly realized that the previous year's injury had considerably weakened his arm. And so they reassigned him to Class C Springfield Cardinals in I think it's Springfield, Missouri. No, yeah. Is it? Yeah, Springfield, Missouri. Yes, it is. Uh, and he later credited manager Ollie Vanek for displaying confidence in his hitting ability. And during 87 games with the Spring with Springfield, Musial hit a league leading 370, I'm sorry, 379 before being promoted to the Rochester Red Wings of the International League. And he was noted for his unique batting stance, a crouch with his back was in which his back was seemingly square to the pitcher. This stance was later described by pitcher Ted Lyons as a kid peeking around the corner to see if the cops were coming. And uh, if you <laughs> if you see same usual, you know, batting, you 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 understand what he's talking about. It's it's a very unique batting stance. Nobody can nobody can do a stand the man stance, you know, other than stand the man. And on the on the stance, according to a 1950 description by author Tom Meany. The bent knees and the crouch gave him the appearance of a coiled spring, although most pitchers think of him as a coiled rattlesnake. And in Rochester, uh, Musial continued to play well. In one three-game stretch, he had 11 hits, and he was called up to the Cardinals for the last two weeks of the 1941 season. So now he has made it to the major leagues. You know, and he made his major league debut in the second game of a doubleheader at Sportsman's Park in St. Louis on September 17, 1941. And the Cardinals were in the midst of a pennant race against with the Brooklyn Dodgers. And in 12 games that in, in that late season call-up, Musial collected 20 hits for a 426 batting average. So in despite late in despite Musial's late contributions, Carlos finished two game two and a half games behind the Dodgers in the pennant race. You know, 41 Dodgers, but, you know, but great things were coming to the Cardinals in the 40s, you know. And um, to begin the 1942 season, Cardinals manager and Baseball Hall of Famer Billy Southworth used Musial as a left fielder to begin the 1942 season, sometimes lifting him for a pinch hitter against left-handed pitching. And, you know, Musial, by late June, Musial was hitting 315 that year, and the Cardinals were again battling the Dodgers for first place in the National League. And then the Cardinals took sole possession of first place on September 13th. And when Musial caught a fly ball to end the first game of a doubleheader on September 27th, they clinched the National League pennant with their 105th win. And Musial finished the season batting 315, just like he was in late June. And uh, he had 72 RBIs in 140 games. And um, he received nationally, he received national publicity when he was named by St. Louis Post Dispatch uh, sports editor J. Roy Stockton as his choice for Rookie of the Year in the Saturday Evening Post Post article. Now, to be clear, the Rookie of the Year award it didn't become a thing until 1947 when Jackie Robinson won the National League Rookie of the Year award. What he's talking about, I guess, is like you know something specifically for the Saturday Evening Post. So this is completely different from later Rookie of the Year selections. So I just want to be clear to our listeners because it didn't start in 1942. It started in 1947. So I just want to throw that out there. Is the Saturday Evening Post still a thing? I don't think so because when Bear Bryant and Wally Butts sued them for libel, 
they won that lawsuit. And I think after that, the Saturday Evening Post uh, went out of business because of it. <laughs> okay. No, it still exists. Okay. Published six times a year. Six times a year. Okay, so. From 1897 to 1963, it was published weekly. And then every other week from six and every other week until 1969. Um, yeah, it's published six times a year now. Okay, so it's not as prevalent as it was back in the day, but you know when Norman Rockwell was doing that's what I'm about covers. to say. Norman Rockwell, those those covers are iconic. If you can get your money on an original print or something like that. Oh yeah, and um, okay, so it still exists, but like not not to the extent that it did back in the day. Six times kind of, a year. Six times a year. I mean, okay, for, I guess for the major holidays. Um, yeah. And, 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 yeah. And so the Cardinals play the Yankees in the 42 World Series. And um, representing the winning run at home plate in the bottom of the ninth inning of game one at Sportsman's Park, Musil grounded out with the bases loaded to end the game. That hurts. Yeah. That hurts. And been, the, the, been the guy that's done it. It hurts. Yeah. But he, uh, in game two, his first hit of the series was an RBI single that proved to be the margin of the victory in Game 2 for the Cardinals. So the Cardinals tied the series in Game 2. And then the next three games at Yankee Stadium, Musial had three more hits as the Cardinals defeated the Yankees in the series, four games to one. And then Musial batted 222 with two runs scored. But still, you know, you got a little series ring out of it. So most people are going to overlook that 222 in the series if you have a ring, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> As long, as long as you're not the GOAT, you, you know. And when I mean GOAT, I mean like, you know, the the loser or like the man, the, the person that causes the, the your team to lose the World Series, then, you know, nobody really cares. So you'll be okay. Yeah, you don't want to be the guy that lets the ball go through your legs at first base or anything like that. Right. You don't want to be <laughs> rest in peace, you know. Um, so the next year – in 43, he started the season with a brief contract hold on spring training. No surprise. You know, you want more money, you know. Um, and he made his first – he made the National League All-Star team for the first time that, that year starting his left – as a starting left fielder, and he got a double in the All-Star game on July 13th. And he finished the 43 season leading the major leagues in hitting with a 357 average and led the National League in hits with 220, doubles with 48, uh, 20 triples, 347 total bases, a 425 on base percentage, and a slugging percentage of 562. And this earned him his first National League uh, MVP award ahead of his teammate and catcher Walker Cooper, who had a 318 batting average. And so they won the pennant. So the Cardinals won the pennant again by 18 games. That's wild. Yeah. They, they dominated. They dominated the National League in 43. But you have to understand, this is the war years. You know, a lot of the good players have left to join the, you know, the armed forces and fight. Oh, World there's War some II. foreshadowing here. Yeah. So <laughs> I got ahead of myself. So anyway, they face the Yankees again in the 43 series. Excuse me. Uh, Musial had a single in the Cardinals game one loss and scored a run in game two in a game two win. But uh, they lost the series to the Yankees. And, um, you know, they still got back in the old days. I don't even know they do it now. Uh, both the winning team and the losing team 
got a share like each player on the on the winning team losing team got a share of like the gate receipts like they got a world series bonus um contracts today are written with world series bonuses i think it's 500 grand if you win and Mm -hmm. i think most teams don't don't quote me as this being exact Okay. I think you get an extra half a million dollars if you win a World Series, depending on how your contract's written. Some contracts might have bigger World Series bonuses, but I think just the team bonus as a whole. Yeah. It's on average about five hundred grand per player to win the World Series, and I, you get something for making it. Yeah, which is I'm glad they do that. You know, I mean that's don't quote me. Murder. Don't quote me on that being accurate number wise, but there's something mm-hmm. there's something to make it there. I'm, it's the same in the NFL also. Yeah, I mean that's that's just more motivation for players to make it to the World Series, and win or lose, you're still going to get a nice bonus out of it. That way, help your family in the long run, you know. Um, and so their world, according to this, the Cardinals' uh, World Series share for the losers' bonus was like four thousand three hundred twenty-one dollars ninety-nine cents, which is equivalent to seventy-three thousand one hundred dollars in two thousand twenty-two money. And that bonus uh, still amounted to nearly two-thirds of Musial's regular season salary. So, good. You know, I mean, you made some money. And so, 44. Yeah, this is what you were foreshadowing at, Matt. Yeah. <laughs> he he had to go. He had to do a physical and a prelude to possible service in the armed forces. And he wound up ultimately reigning with the Cardinals for the entire season. He posted a 347. Mm-hmm. With 197 hits, and uh, they claimed the pennant for the third straight year, and uh, they faced the Browns, St. Louis's other major league team, mm-hmm. um, in the 44 World Series. So they didn't have to go far to play it. No, uh, the Browns took a <laughs> two-one lead. Musial hit 250 with no ribbies, but he broke out in Game Four. He had a, a two-run homer, a single, a double, and a walk. As part of the Cardinals' 5-1 win. If he could got a triple, man, that'd be wild. Yeah. Um, they went on to defeat the Browns in six games, and he posted a 304 average for the series. Yep. And then um, he enlisted in the Navy in, on January 23rd of 1945 during World War II, and uh, he was initially assigned to non-combat duty at uh, Naval Training Center Brainbridge, mm-hmm. which is in uh, Port Deposit, Maryland. Okay. Uh, on the northeast bank of the Susquehanna River. And it, it it was an active base from 42 to 76 under uh, the commander of the 5th Naval District in Norfolk. Mm-hmm. He was assigned to a ferry launch unit to bring back damaged ships entering Pearl Harbor where he was able to play baseball every afternoon in the Naval Base's A-Team League. And um, after being granted emergency leave to see his only father in 46, he was briefly assigned to the Philly Navy Yard before his honorable discharge from the Navy as a seaman second class in 1946. So, he's another one of those that left baseball to go fight the war. Yeah. You go down to the USS Alabama, what is it, Ted Williams? Had a bunk there that's still laid out as it? No, it was Bob Feller. Bob Feller, that's it. Yeah. Um, You know, there's a lot of guys that left baseball in that time period, and uh, probably the quality of baseball you're getting to see, you got a bunch of scrubs like guys like me that wound up playing there. I think my ass would have been in the war. I wouldn't have had a choice about it, but – yeah, there was mostly the major league rosters were mostly filled with veterans, veteran players, and untested rookies to try to fill the rosters, and for both leagues. So it was that could be an episode in the future. World War Two uh, baseball during World War Two is. I was thinking it, that a minute ago. 
Yeah, because when you have a team like the St. Louis Browns winning their only American League pennant and playing in the World Series in 1944, you know that you're scraping at the bottom of the barrel for talent. Yeah. And I'm sorry to say that, but the Browns were just mostly a terrible team in their existence in St. Louis, you know. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, but in 2007, Mutual received the Navy Memorial's Lone Sailor Award, which honors Navy veterans who have excelled in the civilian life. And I think we can all agree that Stan Mutual excelled in the civilian life after his stint in the Navy, you know. Absolutely. Okay, so Musial, Stan comes back to the Cardinals in 46. The war's over. And the Cardinals have a new manager. They replaced Billy Southworth with Eddie Dyer, D-Y-E-R, who played baseball at Rice University. And I say that because I finished reading a book about the Southwest Conference uh, baseball, you know, the old Southwest Conference, and Rice was a member. And they talked about Eddie Dyer in the, in the book. And I was like, oh, that's cool. You know, he played at Rice. Anyway. So, you know, he comes back to the uh, – Musial comes back to the Cardinals, and in the middle of May 1946, he's banned 388. You know, just same old stand. You know, nothing – the war didn't change him. He's still hitting like crazy. And he also became close friends with new teammate and future Hall of Famer Red Shandeast, uh, who had joined the Cardinals during Musial's absence in 1945. Show and dice. Show Okay, yeah. Show and dice. Yeah. If so, you know, if anybody wants to correct us, they can always email us. Show and dice. <laughs> Show and dice. Yeah. Anyway, during the season, Musial, who was under contract to the Cardinals for thirteen thousand five hundred dollars in nineteen forty six, was offered a five year one hundred twenty five dollar, I'm sorry, one hundred twenty five thousand dollar contract, plus a fifty thousand dollar bonus to join the Mexican League, which that was the thing in forty six. It's uh, a lot of money. Yeah. And that's the subject for another time. There was this rival. The Mexican League wanted to be a major league and wanted to steal some of the um, well-known Major League Baseball players, but they didn't really get all these great players like they thought they were going to. Uh, of course, Stan declined the offer, and after Manager Dyer spoke to club owner Sam Breeden, Musil was given a $5,000 raise later in 1946. So there you go, you know. Sam Breeden and A. Dyer didn't want to, lead, lead, uh, didn't want to lose Stan Musil, so they up to salary $5,000. I mean, you got to do what you got to do to keep your guys, especially Stan Musial. And uh, during the 46th season, he would acquire the nickname Stan the Man. Oh, I during a, Yeah, during a June 23rd game against the Dodgers at Ebbets Field, St. Louis Post-Dispatch sports writer Bob, Bob Brogue, B-R-O-E-G, uh, heard Dodgers fans chanting whenever Musial came to bat, but could not understand the words because when you're when you're from Brooklyn, you speak Brooklynese. You speak a very interesting form of English. Uh, later that day over dinner, Brogue <laughs> that's a fair way to assess that. <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting. It's, it's that's all I can say. What do you want? Uh, what are you doing? Yeah, yeah. Brogue, uh, later that day over dinner, Brogue asked Cardinals traveling secretary Little Ward if he had understood what the Dodgers fans had been chanting. Ward said every time Stan came up, they chanted, here comes that man. That man, you mean, Brogue said. No, the man. Here comes the man. Later that day over dinner, Brogue asked Cardinals travel sec traveling secretary, Leo Ward, if he had understood what the Dodgers fans had been chanting. 
Worf said every time Stan came up, they chanted, here comes the man. And Broke said, that man, you mean. And Ward said, no, the man. The man. The man. Broke mentioned uh, the story to in his post-dispatch column, and Musial was thereafter, was thereafter known as Stan the Man. And funny thing, they had a, there was a Brooklyn Dodgers Hall of Fame in the late 80s, early 90s. And they inducted Stan Musial in this Hall of Fame in like 1990. And I think he was the only non-Dodger player in that Hall of Fame. And, you know, because he was, oh, here we go. I got a picture of it in the in the George Vexy book. Musial was inducted into the Brooklyn Dodgers Hall of Fame in June 1990 and was greeted by former Dodgers and writers and fans. And there's a picture of the, uh, I'm showing Patrick the picture of the Brooklyn Dodgers Hall of Fame induction of Stan. And Stan is in the center with all these other Dodgers uh, players and writers and fans. So, and they're sitting on former seats of Evans Field. It's hard to tell, but the the, the blue seats from Evans Field. Mm-hmm. It's just so it's just so wild, you know. <laughs> they, they, the Dodger the Dodger fans thought that highly of Stan Musial, a player who didn't play for the Cardinals, that they would induct him into the Brooklyn Dodgers Hall of Fame. I mean, it's just it's wild. It's just hard to fathom that, you know. Right. Yeah. But you know, June forty six, Dyer began using Musial as a first baseman. And so here's the thing. At the end of the season, the Cardinals and the Dodgers were tied for first place, prompting a three-game playoff for the pennant. Musial hit a triple in game one and a double in game two, and it contributed to the Cardinals' victory. Uh, they, they swept the Dodgers two straight in the two at best of three to win the National League pennant. And then they faced Ted Williams and the Boston Red Sox in the 46 World Series. Cardinals beat the Red Sox four games to three. Musial had six hits and four RBIs. He batted three, and you know, and of course, that was the World Series that was known as, um, you know, the picture on our um, podcast is of Venus Slaughter's Mad Dash from first to home. You know, that was most people remember the series for that Venus Slaughter scoring, I think, the winning run in Game Seven or some or the go ahead run in Game Seven to win the series. And of course, Ted Williams for the Red Sox, he hit like 200, and the Cardinals used the Williams shift on him and all that. And the 46 series was interesting, to say the least. But, uh, you know, in the season, for the season, the regular season, Musial uh, hit 365 and won his second NL MVP award, receiving 22 out of the possible 24 first place votes, finishing ahead of Brooklyn's, uh, the Brooklyn player, Dixie Walker. And then he got off to the, the 47th season, Stan got off to a slow start. He hit 146 in April, which that's not Stan the Man numbers, as we all know. On May 9th, uh, team doctor Robert Highland confirmed the previous diagnosis of appendicitis while discovering that Musial was concurrently suffering from tonsillitis. This poor guy. Appendicitis and tonsillitis. That's... Uh, you know, and he received the, and Stan received the treatment, but did not have either his appendix or tonsil surgically removed until after the season ended. Despite his health woes, he still hit three twelve. So I mean, he managed to still hit three hundred despite ailing from tonsillitis and appendicitis. So you know, in these in these type, you know, in today's game, you'd probably be on the DL, or I'm sorry, the IL. Now they call it the injured list. You know. 
or you'd be sitting out for a game or two because of this. But Stan, you know, different times, man. You, you know, you played hurt. You played sick. You know, you didn't want to lose your spot. In the There's lineup. a difference between hurt and injured today. Back then, you just played. Yeah. You know, you just played because you didn't want somebody taking your spot in the lineup and you'd be sent back down to the minors or have your career over or what have you. So, and, uh, you know, he did, he fully recovered from his ailments in the offseason. And then in 48, he got his 1,000th career hit on April 25th, 1948. And, um, you know, You know, apparently, it, you know, back in the day, ball players appeared in cigarette ads, and Musial was, you know, in one of those ads. And after a Saint, a May seventh article in the St. Louis Globe Democrat, which criticized ball players for appearing in these ads, cigarette ads, Stan made a personal decision to never again appear in such ads. So he's like, I'm not going to do it. You know. I, it's probably not good for the kids. You know. Yeah. It's like, hey, <laughs> you're right. Uh, maybe I shouldn't. You should probably maybe I shouldn't be in these ads, you know. Like there's yeah. a rule today, um, in the minor leagues, if you get caught dip with like tobacco in your locker in the minor leagues, you're in trouble. In the major leagues, it's don't get caught on camera doing it. Right. You know. Or putting you it in. You you can get caught with it in, but don't get caught putting it in. Right. Be discreet about it. That's it. Yeah. You know. And um and of course, you know, Stan's doing Stan things. By June 24th, he was banned 408. And, you know, Brooklyn, <laughs> this prompted uh, Brooklyn pitcher Preacher Rowe to comically announce his new method for getting Stan out, uh, walking him on four pitches and pick him off first. So that's his, that was his way of getting Stan out of the game, just walking him and then trying to pick him off first base. And then, you know, Musial got a mid-season pay raise by the new Cardinals owner, Robert E. Hannigan, for his outstanding performance in the, um, you know, just for that whole season, you know, the beginning of the, the first half of the season, getting a, getting a raise for, you know, just doing great. Musial hit a home run in the All-Star game that year. And on September 22nd, he registered five hits in the game for the fourth time in the season, tiny March sent by Ty Cobb in 1922. Yeah, you're doing you're doing wonders if you're in your baseball career if you're doing something that Ty Cobb did <laughs> on the ball diamond, you know. And then you know, Musial finished the 48th season batting 376. He led the he led both leagues in batting average and doubles. To, I'm sorry, batting average with 376, uh, 230 hits, 46 doubles, 18 triples. 429 total bases and a slugging percentage of 702. And he, he won the National League Bang title by a 43-point margin. This <laughs> is home run shy of the triple crown. Yeah, you know? he was if you could so, hit some homers, you'd have a triple crown. He, he was so close to winning the triple crown. There's a good quote uh about him that season. He missed tying for the top in homers by one rained out home run. If it had counted, he would have won the triple crown that year. In addition, would have been the only player of this century to lead the league in runs, hits, doubles, triples, and slugging percentage. What a year. And that's by sports writer Bob Brogue on his 1948 season. Yeah. And um, no surprise, 
Musial won the MVP again. He became the first player to win three nationally MVP awards. I mean, who else would have you? Who else would have? I mean, you you couldn't have given it to anybody else in 1948. You know, I mean, Stan the Man was it. You know, and um, so and of course he's think you know at this time he's thinking about life outside of baseball because he know like everybody like every athlete knows you can't play the game forever. And so thinking of this, he began his first of several business partnerships with a guy named Julius Biggie Garagnani or Garagnani in January 1949. He opened a restaurant with Garagnani called Stan Musial and Biggie's. And this is, um, it was kind of like a fancy restaurant. There was steak, you know, they sold steak and it was a popular place for, uh, you know, ballplayers to go after a game or just anybody, you know. And I want to say that that um, I think that was the place where when Yogi Berra had that famous quip of, you know, nobody goes there, it's too crowded. I think he was referring to Stan Musial and Biggies. I, I'm not 100%. I had to double check. But I think Yogi Berra was referring to Stan Musial and Biggies restaurant when he made that quote because it was just so popular, you know. <laughs> um, but, you know, he, so he, Stan approached the 1949 season with the intent to try to hit more home runs, saying that he had 39 the previous season without trying. <laughs> His new focus on hitting for power backfired as pitchers began using the outside part of the plate to induce him to ground out to first or second. Yeah, and, got uh, the rollover ground balls going. Yeah. And then after that, he stopped focusing on hitting home runs and resumed his con consistent offensive production by the end of May. And he received his uh, sixth consecutive all-star player selection and finished the season leading nationally with 207 hits while playing every game that season. And back then, you played 154 games. You know, well, let me double check because some people, you know, uh, let's see, 1949. Yeah. Right. yeah. Oh, okay, so... You play. You most of people most people play 154 games, but according to Baseball Reference, he played. Uh, Stan played in 157 games in 1949. But still, you. Well, that'd be including playoffs and whatnot. Yeah, I, I'm sure. Yeah, so you know, and the Cardinals they finished with 96 wins, but they finished behind the Dodgers. Uh, one game behind the Dodgers that year in '49. And um, you know. As we've as we've already discussed, you know, the uh, baseball is integrating, and um, you know, Dodgers pitcher Don Newcomb, who was that, who was with African American, he praised both Musial and and Red Schoendienst uh, for their tolerance. Newcomb said they never had the need to sit in the dugout and call a black guy a bunch of names because he was trying to change the game. And make it what it should have been in the first place—a game for all people. So good, you know. Um, it's now we get to the fifties. Now you have to understand the Cardinals in the fifties, as I'm sure Patrick knows because he's a Cardinals fan. They didn't win any pennants. And they didn't win the World's. They didn't go to any World Series. So this was a, I guess you could say a down decade for the Cardinals in that sense. And you didn't about the only it. decade. Yeah. What. You know, maybe the 70s, too, because they didn't make the playoffs in the 70s. But, you know, they didn't make the – they didn't win any pennants in the 50s. 
and so 1950 um uh, he began the he began the 50 season by posting a 350 batting average before participating in the 50 all-star game where in fan balloting he was the national league's number two choice he had the longest hitting streak of his career that season a 30 game stretch that ended on july 27th 30 game history is nothing to sneeze at and with the Cardinals falling 14 games out of first place by September, um, Eddie Dyer used him again at first base in all three outfield positions. And then the next season, Dyer got replaced as manager by uh, Marty Marion. And he led the team, the Cardinals finished in third place in 51, with Musial once again leading nationally with a 355 batting average, 355 total bases, 124 runs scored, 12 triples. And he finished second in National League voting that year, National League MVP voting that year for the third year in a row. It was named the Sporting News' Major League Player of the Year. And, you know, he's getting national, he's getting media attention. If he wasn't getting it in the 40s, he's getting it now in the 50s for being a good player. Ty Cobb himself, as I mentioned earlier in this podcast, he wrote an article uh, in. Well, it was published in Life Magazine, but I think it was really in Look Magazine. Anyway, he published an article. He wrote an article regarding modern baseball, and you know, he wasn't most. Cobb wasn't really mostly impressed with modern ball players, with the exception of Stan Musial and Phil Rizzuto. He said on both Musial and Rizzuto, and he said they are the only players who can be mentioned in the same breath with the old-time greats. And he referred, uh, Calvarante referred to Musial as a better player than Joe DiMaggio was in his prime. And, uh, you know, in response, Musial displayed his character Samasi saying, Cobb is baseball's greatest. I don't want to contradict him, but I can't say that I was ever as good as Joe DiMaggio. I'm like, dude, <laughs> you're both, you're all three, you're all all-time greats, man. I mean, you're, you're up there with DiMaggio, you know. For sure. <laughs> right. Yeah, you know. And so, um, and so in 52, the same year that the article came out, Musial made his only major league pitching appearance that year. And it occurred as a publicity stunt during the last Cardinals home game of the 52 season. Uh, this time in 52, uh, the new Cardinal manager was Eddie Stanky who would later go on to become South Alabama's baseball, University of South Alabama's baseball coach from like 69 to 86 or something like that. Eddie Stanky had a reluctant usual pitch to Frank Baumholtz, the runner up to usual for the best batting average in the National League that season. With Baumholtz batting right-handed for the first time in his career, I guess he was a natural left-hander, Musial's first pitch was so hard to hit was hit so hard it ricocheted off the shin of third baseman Solly Humus and into the left field corner. <laughs> the play was ruled as an error. Excuse me. And Musial was embarrassed enough by his complicity in the gimmick to avoid pitching again for the remainder of his career. <laughs> that would happen, man. End of the season. Go pitch it. Go pitch, man. <laughs> Let's see here. You know, find his major league pitch and see what he did. Yeah. That's funny, though. <laughs> you just have to laugh at that, man. It's pretty, it's pretty funny. 
Uh, it's not pulling it up. Oh well. I'm sure we could find the box score of that game on uh on uh baseball reference. Last Cardinals home game of the fifty two season at Sportsman's Park. He faced one batter. Yeah, that was Bumholtz. <laughs> yeah, no, there was nothing after that. One guy. No, just one guy. He was so embarrassed he wouldn't do it again. <laughs> Zero point zero ERA. One guy. Liner off my third baseman's face. Yeah. No, it's the third baseman's shin. But still, he hit the third baseman. Every well, I, I thought you said corner. chin. No, I'm sorry. Shin. S-H-I-N. Shin. Okay, I said, I heard C-H. Yeah. Uh, yeah. One batter. He faced one better. <laughs> it was in the season. What do you, you know, whatever. You don't want to waste a pitcher. So go put it in the same usual. He used to be a pitcher in the minor leagues and in, in, in school, you know. I mean, just why not? <laughs> oh, boy. And so 53, um, the Cardinals franchise was up for sale. At the time, it was owned by Fred Saig, S A I G H, and he was. If I recall, and I read this in Bill Veck's autobiography, Veck is in wreck, because Veck on the Browns at the time, uh, Fred Sag was in some financial trouble. I think he owed the IRS a bunch of money. I'd have to double-check that, of course, because it's been a while since I've read Veck is in wreck. But Sag owed a lot of money to the IRS. And some usual and Schoendienst advised their friend and fellow duck hunter, Gussie Bush, who you know, guy who owned Anheuser-Busch at the time, part of the Bush family, to consider buying the Cardinals. And so Bush used his resources from Anheuser-Busch to purchase the Cardinals, keeping Musial in St. Louis by averting the possibility of a move by the team to another city. So there you go. I mean, Stan Musial convinced Gussie Bush to buy the Cardinals to save the Cardinals from moving, if that was a possibility, you know. And then, you know, 53 season, Musial makes the All-Star team for the 10th time. And the uh, 12th consecutive time, he finished a major league season with a batting average of 300. And Musial accomplished. And so, and this and 53 was the last year of the Browns, St. Louis Browns. They moved to Baltimore. The next season became the Baltimore Orioles. So after the 53 season, the Cardinals were the only game in town for baseball. So, bye-bye, bye-bye, Browns. Dude, imagine had they moved that team. Yeah, if the Cardinals moved and not the Browns, that'd be something else. <laughs> that'd be insane. <laughs> Where would they have gone, you know? I mean, what would they Or had they both left? That's what I'm thinking. Like, If they both left, that would be devastating. The Indianapolis yeah. Cardinals or some shit? Yeah. Would, have, would, would St. Louis have gotten an expansion team? Or would have, like, you know, the Philadelphia A's moved to St. Louis instead of Kansas City, you know. There's just so many possibilities if both teams left St. Louis for various reasons. Stan the man deserves some credit for that right there. Yeah, he he does. Who would have thought that he'd help keep the Cardinals in St. Louis? And then um, the next season, 54, he uh, accomplished another historical feat on May 2nd. In a doubleheader against the New York Giants in St. Louis, he hit three home runs in the first contest, then added two more in the second contest to become the first major league to hit five home runs in a doubleheader. In addition 
to his five home runs. He also hit a single in the first game, saying a new record of 21 total bases for a doubleheader. The only player besides Musial to have hit five home runs in a doubleheader is Nate Colbert, who achieved that feat in 1972. Oddly enough, as a young child, Colbert was in attendance as Stan Musial set this record. I mean, why, does that, why does that always happen that way? It's it's, it's wild. It's wild. That always happens that way. It's so wild, man. But it's it's that's what makes baseball special. And, and well, sports, sports in general. Sports, sports in, general. in general. You know, Nate Colbert was there and he saw Stan Musial do it, and then he replicated that feat in 1972. I mean, that's that's just pretty cool, man. I mean, sports, man. Sports, sports. They bring people together. They make magic moments. And so, you know, we're co- we're going still in the fifties. 55 years, yeah, Musial makes his 12th National League All-Star appearance as a reserve player. And um, Cincinnati's uh, Ted Klazuski outpulled him in by 150,000 votes to get on the starting lineup at first base. And so Musial entered, no, sorry, Musial entered the game as a pitch hitter in the fourth inning and played left field as the game entered extra innings. Leading off the bottom of the 12th, he hit a home run to give the National League a 65 victory. And that year, it was the the um, All-Star game was played in Milwaukee at Milwaukee County Stadium. 56, Musial broke uh, Mel Ott's National League record for extra base hits on August 12th. And this is crazy. Cardinals general manager at the time, Frank Lane, also known as Trader Frank, began negotiations to trade Musial to the Philadelphia Phillies for pitcher Robin Roberts, who's also in the Hall of Fame. When Cardinals owner Gussie Bush learned of the possible move, he made it clear that Musial was not available for any trade. Instead, instead Lane dealt Musial's close friend, Shane Deanst, uh, Deanst, to the New York Giants, and, and upset Musial made no comment, made no immediate comment to the press. So Musial was not thrilled that... Uh, his buddy left to go to the Giants, which I understand. You know, you, you make friends on the team. It's hard to see a, a teammate go to another team. You know, right. it, it's understandable. Especially so, when it, somebody your team could have kept. It, yeah, exactly. I mean, he – Shane Deans was a great player in his own right. He made the Hall of Fame in 89, you know. But um, the next season, 57, June 11th of 57 – Usual tied the national record for consecutive games played with his 822nd, which is a streak that began on the last day of the 51 season. Despite ballot stuffing by the Cincinnati Reds fans, which we talked about in the first episode of our podcast, the All-Star Game, he was selected, uh, Musial was selected and played in the All-Star Game, which was held at Sportsman's Park, which at that time, Sportsman's Park became Bush Stadium. Or some people call it Bush Stadium Number One. Anyway, so just Wikipedia says it was held at Sportsman's Park, but by '57 they called it Bush Stadium after, you know, Anheuser Bush, Gussie Bush. Anyway, and then uh, when he overextended his swing while batting during a game on August 23rd, Musial fractured a bone in his left shoulder socket and tore muscles over over his collarbone. Ooh. And he was not able to play again until September 8th, ending his consecutive game streak at 895. And he finished the season, the 57th season, as Sports Illustrated Sportsman of the Year. 
So even though he got hurt, you know, he still, uh, you know, he still made Sports Illustrated Sportsman of the Year. You know, not too bad for, uh, well, he was 36 when he played in 57 because he turned 38 after, uh, 37 after the season. So Sports Illustrated started in 54, so he was one of the first Sportsmen of the Year. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty cool, man. Does Sports Illustrated even still exist as, like, a anything? I know it's not a magazine anymore. There's still a website. Yeah, there's still a website. But they don't do the and magazine anymore, do they? They may. I'm not sure. I know the Sporting News stopped doing the magazine years ago once they moved from St. Louis to Charlotte. Uh, I, I haven't got a Sports Illustrated subscription in years, so I wouldn't know off the top of my head. But still, you know, back when Sports Illustrated was a big thing, probably still is, but to a lesser extent. Especially anyway, the, uh, they had that one good episode, that one good issue a year or two. Oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you know, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so 58, before the 58 season, Musial signed one of the first $100,000 contracts in National League Baseball history on January 29th of that year. Apparently, he wasn't the first. Hank Greenberg did it when he signed with the Pittsburgh Pirates in 1947. And, of course, uh, you know, Musial still had a great season. Uh, in May of 1958, he shared National League Player of the Month honors with Willie Mays, which was the uh, inaugural Player of the Month. It was the only time that Musial won it, but again, you know, who needs player of the month when he can win MVP, right? You know, absolutely. And he batted 374. Let's see, that month he batted 374 with four home runs and 16 RBIs. And you know, he's approaching 3,000 hits at this point at that in May. He wanted to do it in St. Louis. But he did it at Wrigley Field on May 13th with a pinch hit, six-inning six RBI double. You can't pick and choose when you get what hit, man. You just got to let it come how it comes. Yeah, exactly. It's just going to show up when it does. And he, at the time, he was the eighth major league player to reach 3,000 hits and the first to reach the milestone with an extra base hit. Musial was greeted at the St. Louis Union Station that evening by roughly 1,000 fans. Um, because back then they were at least at that point in time they were still traveling by train, mm-hmm. at least from St. Louis to Chicago, and finished the season in sixth place. Cardinals embarked on an exhibition tour of Japan, winning fourteen to sixteen games against the top players in the Central and Pacific Japanese leagues. So this school you got to play in Japan. Mentioning you know. mentioning teams traveling by uh, train. That's why they used to play four or five game series. Mm-hmm. Um. It's become more of a traditional thing now, but they used to do that because of travel um, by train. You couldn't just go play one game. All right. You had to play multiple games in order to make the trains. And, um, you know, the cool thing was in 58, when he got the uh, 3,000 hit, I think the next game in St. or the next time they played in St. Louis, both Tris Speaker and Paul Wainer who were members of the 3000 hit club, they were on hand to congratulate him doing that in, I guess, in St. Louis. It wasn't a really field. And then in 1970, jumping ahead a little bit, when Hank Aaron got his 3000 career hit at Crosley Field in Cincinnati, 
Dan Musial was at the game, and you know he went out on the field after after Hank got his three thousand hit, and like publicly celebrated. You know Hank joining the three thousand hit club. Like he was holding Hank's hand up in the air and all that. It was just a nice moment. You know, it's like, hey, you know, welcome to the three thousand hit club. You know, it's good to have fellow members be there to help honor your occasion. You know what I'm saying? So that I think that was a cool moment. So fifty nine. Do you think we see many more members of that club? I, I think really the don't. game's changed so much that I I just don't see it. The like, standards, the standards for what is that caliber of performance have changed so much. Like we're not going to see another three hundred game winner. No, no. Other than so, other than uh, some guys that are playing now that might sneak in. That hang on. If Verlander if Verlander stays healthy and keeps pitching, I think he'll get to three hundred wins. But yeah, other than that though, I don't really. I just don't see it. I just don't see like three thousand hits either. I mean, I'd have to go see who's the closest active player. You'd 500, be lucky to get five hundred home runs, maybe. Maybe, yeah. You'll never now, see another seven hundred home seven hundred home run guy. I don't think. Um, you'd be these days. You'd be lucky to get twenty five hundred hits in a career. You know, Joey Votto just got his two thousand career last year. But you know, I mean, it's just I don't know, man. It's I wish there was more of it, but at the same time. We're probably not going to see many, many of that afterwards, you know, in our lifetime. The game keeps changing, I'm... man, and uh, hey. and me and you are traditionalists. Yeah, it it's just these rule changes, um, the way they eliminated certain pitching roles, uh, the DH. I don't know. There's so much that's changing in ball that the Hall of Fame standard is going to be very vastly different going forward yeah it's gonna be really interesting to see what goes on with the hall of fame and just voting in, in the future i you know it's all it's all topsy-turvy man <laughs> Shit. back to stan yeah so taking a new approach in preparation for the 1959 season musual was given permission to report late to spring training so that he might conserve his energy for the duration of the year you know, he's getting up there in age. That's understandable. Uh, Musial had always maintained his playing weight around 175 pounds throughout his career. And he reported street training approximately 10 pounds overweight and in substandard physical addition. He began the season with one hit and 15 in bats. Despite his early offensive struggles, he single-handedly spoiled potential no-hitters on April 16th and April 19th. And a game-winning home run on May 7th Made him the first major league player to have to ever made the first major league player ever with uh, 400 home runs and 3,000 hits. And um, he continued as he continued to hit at a relatively low pace. His playing time was limited by the Cardinals manager Solly Hemus at various points during the season, seeking more revenue for the players' pension fund. Major League Baseball held two All Star games. In a season for the first time through 62, which we've already mentioned yeah. in the first episode. This shit all comes full circle, doesn't it, Matt? <laughs> it really does, yeah. Uh, Musial made his 16th appearance, all-star appearance that season, and he pinched hit, pinched hit in both contests, flying out for the July 7th game, and then drawing a walk in the August 3rd game. He finished the season with 115 regular game appearances and a 255 batting average. Uh, 37 runs scored and a selling percentage of 428. 
it was an off year for Stan. Yeah, he's also getting he's year. also getting old. Yeah, he's getting up there in age. And then John and near the end of during the 59 season, John F. Kennedy of all people approached Stan about supporting uh, Kennedy's campaign for president in 1960, saying they're close ages. Mutual campaign for Kennedy later that year and became a supporter of the Democratic Party. And then, um, you know, June 30th, Mutual was the batter in one of the... Oh, okay, this... They're talking about this odd play, which we already talked about in the Ernie Banks episode. Yes. It was, so, uh, he was at the plate with a count of 3-1 during Bob Anderson's pitch went away, evading the catcher Sammy Taylor, and it rolled all the way to the backstop. Um, Dick Delmore called ball four, even though Anderson and Taylor contended that Musial foul-tipped it. Um. <laughs> But because the ball was still in play, Delmore was in an argument with the catcher and the pitcher. He just kept running and trying to make a base, and they were still seeing that they were going for second. He ran to the backstop and threw the ball. The ball wound up in the hands of field announcer Pat Piper. But he ended up getting it back anyway, and they pulled out a new ball, gave it to Taylor. He finally noticed that Mews was trying for second, took the new ball, threw it to second. Tony Taylor caught the ball at second. He threw it two times, Taylor. He didn't catch the ball. So it went over his head into the outfield. It's it just a whole deal. Yeah. Um, the original ball went to Ernie Banks. Muslin didn't see Dark Star, only knows Anderson's ball, you know, and it's a whole deal. And after the whole play, he was rolled out with the original ball. I think today that would never happen, but. Yeah. That was just a wild play. And, you know, we were already discussed that. The There's Ernie a layman term for it. It's called a uh, cluster F. <laughs> that's the truth when I'm, so, reading a par- when I'm looking at a paragraph in my notes about it and I can't make sense of it it's it's cluster yeah kind of like that, uh, that article from last kind of like that Tony Longino article from the last episode talking about TPREA and whatnot that was a yeah <laughs> uh, and so Uh, Musial at the beginning before the 1960 season. Now we're going to the 60s. Musial accepted a pay cut in 1960 from his previous hundred thousand dollar, hundred thousand dollar salary to eighty thousand dollars, and he was eager to prove that his mediocre performance was a result of improper physical condition. And he enlisted the help of Walter Eberhart, St. Louis University's director of physical education. In June 1960, newspaper articles began speculating that Musial would soon retire. Yeah, he finished the season with a 275 batting average. He addressed the speculation in September, confirming that he would play again in 1961. And uh, let's see. His 288 batting average in 61 reaffirmed that decision. In 62, Mutual posted a, 300, a 330 batting average, good for third in the batting race with 19 homers and 82 RBIs. And as a pitch hitter that season, he had 14 base hits and 19 at-bats. Along the way, he established a new National League record, a uh, National League career mark for hits and RBIs. That same year in July, he, a 41-year-old Musial became the oldest player to ever hit three home runs in one game. And then, so now we get to his last season, 1963. And um, the Cardinals started off hot in 63. They started off hot, 10 of the first 15. Mm-hmm. 
but Musial was hitting like 237. Yeah, but he also yeah. he set a new major league record for uh, career extra base hits on May 8th mm-hmm. of uh, 63. And he improved his average to 277 by the end of the month. And uh, he made his 20th All-Star appearance. Yeah. 20. And his 24th <laughs> All-Star game appearance. Yeah. It's just... Well, it's just wild how that works. 20th All-Star game. All-Star appearance. 24th All-Star game appearance. And... Um, yeah. They pinch hit in the fifth inning, and he asked by general manager Bing Devine on July 26th what his plans were. He said that he would retire. And he waited until the Cardinals team picnic on August 12th, the public announced his decision, hopeful he could retire on a winning note. Yeah. He became a grandfather the first time in the early hours of September 10th. Later that day, he had a home run in his first at bat. Welcome That's to the awesome. world, grandchild. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, the Dodgers, let's see, after sweeping a double hair on September, 9th, September 15th, the Carlson won 19 of their last 20 games and were one game behind the Los Angeles Dodgers. The Dodgers then swept the Cardinals in a three-game series in St. Louis and clinched nationally pinned on September 25th. Stan Musial's last game was September 29th, 1963, and the game was preceded by an hour-long retirement ceremony. Speakers at the event included baseball commissioner Fort Frick, Carl's broadcaster Harry Carey, which some fans may That's not so know. That's so wild, isn't it? Yeah, Harry Carey was there. It, people – I'm sure some modern fans don't know this. But Harry Carey started in St. Louis as the Cardinals broadcaster. You know that's where he got his fame initially. And his, grand, uh, his grandson is the uh, Trash Pandas color guy, still right? Yeah, Josh Carey. Yeah, yep. and, and Chip Carey's now with the Cardinals, so that's cool. That's um, why all this all goes full circle. And then you have uh, the Bucks, and it's just these two broadcasting families. Oh yeah. Or sports casting films, I guess. Yeah, sports broadcasting, sports casting, all of it. Yeah. Um, and of course, Gussie Bush was there too. And Gussie Bush announced at the ceremony that Musial's uniform number six would be retired by the team. And during the game, Musial recorded a single in the fourth inning, then hit a single to right field that scored teammate Kurt Flood in the sixth. Uh, Johnny Keane, who was the Cardinals manager that season, brought in Gary Kolb, K-O-L-B, as a pinch runner from Musial, bringing his major league career to an end. Just as he recorded two base hits in his major league debut, Musial finished his last game with two base hits as well. Musial finished the uh, Musial finished with the all-time major league record for hits, and at the time, second only to Ty Cobb on the all-time major league hit list. The best part was about this: Musial's last career hit was out of reach of Cincinnati Reds second baseman Pete Rose, who would go on to break both Musial and Cobb's records for hits. These things always <laughs> come at full circle, don't they, Matt? <laughs> they do. And I remember them. I remembered that would be mentioned in the 1960s episode of Ken Burns Baseball. They mentioned that, you know, somebody mentioned that in the Ken Burns episode of the 60s. I need to go back and watch all those because my cousin Bobby did the, a lot of the music for those. Or my, my, my dad's cousin, my second cousin. Yeah. Bobby Horton. I'm sure Bobby you know name it. Yeah. Oh, oh yes. Yeah. That's I, my second cousin. He has a lot of music for those documentaries and stuff. Yeah. So before my grandmother, I, my grandmother was a Horton. Nice. So before I begin, before I talk about anything else, I have also in 1963, Stan Musial recorded a 
vinyl record, which I am showing Patrick right now. It's called Stand the Man's Hit Record, uh, produced by Stand the Man Incorporated, to help you be a big league batter. And uh, it was what sponsored is it, uh, by... Is it a record full of walk-up, banger walk-up songs? No, it's it's <laughs> it's him instructions, and I and like it's him and former Cardinals catcher slash broadcaster Joe Garagiola, him and Joe Garagiola and this whole on both sides of the record are just talking hitting. Like Joe would ask Stan questions about certain hitting. So like, I got to get my hands here and see the ball and get my hands here, kind of stuff. Yes, and like, like hitting like, fundamentals. Yeah, like hitting fundamentals, like just to teach kids or whoever how to play baseball great or be a good hitter. And it's fascinating. Now, I briefly I need to, thought... I need to find a copy of that record for myself. Yeah, I got this record in 2014 at a yard sale in Madison, but then I went to, and like, because back in 2014, we were into like going to uh yard sales and garage sales and whatnot it's 2023 about to be 24 i'm into that yeah i mean it's fun to do i haven't done it much because just i love some vintage stores and some flea markets and some yeah yeah sonia went with her grandparents today to a damn uh uh antique store like we still dig that stuff yeah i mean it's just it's fun and it was really cool finding this i was not expecting it i found like other records too that i bought that was a great yard sale we went to. And you um, probably got it for two dollars. Yeah, it was somewhere out there. It was like two. And there's no in. telling what that thing's worth, dude. Yeah, I mean the the family didn't want it anymore. They put it in the yard sale to sell, and so I got it, and it still plays great. I played, I played it. I think what most reason I played it was 2020, and it sounded great. Um, I Dad and I briefly thought about this was his idea. Briefly thought about playing it playing some of it during the broadcast, but like trying to bring the final record player down. And I don't think it would sound well doing this broadcast. Like if we were both in the same room recording it, sure. But like, you know, I, I would probably play a snippet of it, but like trying to do this now with both of us um, in different parts of the state, I just don't think it would sound very well. On the, on the I've got podcast. a record player. I just found a copy of it on eBay. Also. Yeah. It doesn't look like it's in great shape, though. Yeah. Hey, I'm finding it, I'm finding ones that look like they're in good shape for about thirty five bucks. Yeah. I was hoping for more for that, but I might next, have to buy me a copy of that. If 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 you do great, if not, the next time, if next time we record together, I got two like, record players. Yeah, I will bring the album and we'll listen to it, and we'll listen to Joe Garagiola and Stan Musial talk heading. It'd be great. Oh, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, so, you know, I just wanted to show that because, you know, I own this album, and it, we're talking about Stan Musial, so. That's cool. You should frame that. Yeah. Honestly. It, once, the, once the record wears out or it's too scratched up, I'll frame it, you know. But if it still plays, I'll play it. <laughs> uh, and so, as you can imagine, Stan Musial had a bunch of records at the time of his retirement. Uh, he held at the time of his retirement, he held or shared 17 major league records, 29 national league records, and nine all star game records. And among those records, you know, he ranked as a major league career, major league career leader in extra base hits with 1,377 and total bases with 6,134. And he held national league career marks of hits, which we mentioned, games played 3,026. 
725 doubles, and 1,951 RBIs. He finished his career with 475 home runs, despite never having led the National League in the category. So he never led the National League in home runs, but he still managed to hit 475. So not There's bad. something to be said about consistency. Exactly. And he was a consistent man. Also, back in that time, players had a lot longer careers than they do now. Yeah. But then he also got a thing. He took a little time off for the war. Yeah. If he if he didn't take a time off, he probably would have got 2,000 career RBI and 500 home runs. You know, maybe I mean, 4,000 hits. Maybe 4,000 hits. I mean, it just, you know, in retrospect, it's it's easy to speculate what he could have done. Um, Speculation's easy, man. Yeah, it's it, it, hindsight's twenty twenty. He's also the first major league player to appear in more than a thousand games at two different positions. Mm-hmm. Registered in eighteen ninety six in the outfield and one thousand and sixteen at first base, which you know I feel like today is more of a thing. You got guys that lose their legs and end up have enough fat to get in the lineup, but but then again today probably not as much because you have the DH position that every team has to use. Kind of right. being in the National League, that's not a thing anymore. No. Um, um, since his retirement in 63, Tony Gwynn's the only player to finish his career with a higher lifetime batting average. And Hank Aaron is the only player to surpass his record of 6,134 total bases. Yeah. In his 3,026 Major League mm-hmm. appearances, he was never ejected from a game. That's saying something. That is saying, yeah, 3,000 games, you don't get ejected. Um, speaking about his quiet reputation within the sports history, broadcaster Bob Costas said, he didn't hit a homer in his last at bat. He hit a single. He didn't hit in 56 straight games. He married his high school sweetheart and stayed married to her. All musical represents is more than two decades of sustained excellence and complete decency as a human being. Yeah. Um, and- after he retired, he was named uh, vice president of St. Louis Cardinals in 63, and he remained in that position until after the 66 season. And from February 64 to 67, he also serves as president LBJ's physical fitness partner, a part-time position created to promote better fitness among American citizens. Thank you for the oh, physical it, fitness test, Dan. <laughs> yeah, it, it's physical fitness advisor, not, right. not partner. Yeah. Uh before the 67 season, the Cardinals named him general manager of the team, and he oversaw the club's World Series championship that year. Oh, so he's good at everything. Cool, yeah, man. I'm, Leave a little bit for the rest of us. <laughs> he has the Midas touch, man. And then he won the allegiance of Cardinals players by making fair offers from the outset of player contract negotiations and creating an in-stadium babysitting service so that players' wives could attend games. As we mentioned, That's he awesome. married – Yeah, it's – he was thinking ahead, man. He was that he was being considerate of the wives. As we mentioned, uh, he married Lillian or Lil, as she was known, the daughter of a grocer back in Denora. Well, they met in Denora and they got married in uh, Daytona they Beach. In 40. Yeah. They had four kids, one son, Richard, and daughters, Jerry, Janet, and Jeannie. And uh, they were married for 72 years and she died. On uh, May 3rd, 2012. How many marriages are going 72 years these days? Not many, my man. Not many. 50% divorce rate, if not higher. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's kind of sad. Um, 
So he was inducted to the Hall of Fame in 1969. Oh, hold on. I, I kind of skipped ahead, but, you know. Skipped his harmonica playing, Matt. How are you going to do that? My bad. <laughs> We're gonna, that's no. going to be the outro if I can find it, is uh, him playing Take Him Out to the Ball Game. Uh, throughout the 90s, he frequently played the harmonica at public gatherings, like the Hall of Fame induction, charity events. And he appeared on the TV show Hee Haw in 85. And in 1994, <laughs> recorded 18 songs that were sold in tandem with the harmonica playing instruction booklet. Yeah. And Even then, though he left Nora after high school, he retained close ties to his hometown throughout the rest of his life. Um, he was a leader of a bunch of social clubs there and regularly sent local doctors boxes of autographed baseballs um, and with the town mayor using some for the United Way fundraising. He also gave free meals away at the restaurant he owned in St. Louis to any customers who presented valid ID proving they were from Denora. Mm -hmm. And um, <laughs> he believed in racial equi equality and supported Jackie Robinson's right to play. After learning about the harmful effect of smoking in the 50s, he refused to endorse tobacco products, which we already covered. Yeah. Um, he's the man. Like, literally, his name fits. He's Stan the man. Stan the man. On August 4, 68, a statue was erected outside of Bush Memorial Stadium on the northeast grounds of St. Louis Stadium. It's moved from its relocation to the west side of the new Bush Stadium in 2006. It's inscribed with a quote attributed to the former baseball commissioner, Ford Frick. Here stands baseball's perfect warrior. Here stands baseball's perfect knight. In 1968, he received the Golden Plate Award of the American Academy of Achievement. He's also elected to the Hall of Fame in his first of eligibility in 1969 when he was named on 93.2% of the ballots. How do you not go 100% on this guy? I mean, we talked about this previously. How do you? Some people I mean, just got to be stubborn with their votes, don't they? Oh, yeah. And I'm then sure. on June 14th of 73, he was the first inductee into the National Polish American Hall of Fame, housed at St. Mary's College in Orchard Lake, Michigan. In 89, he was inducted into the St. Louis Walk of Fame. Five years later, a baseball field was named after him in his hometown of Denora. He was ranked the 10th on the Sporting News' list of 100 greatest baseball players, published in 1998. He was also one of 30 players selected to the Major League All-Century team, added by a special committee after he finished 11th in fan voting amongst outfielders. In 2000, he was inducted into the Hall of Fame of Missouri, Hall of Famous Missourians, and a bronze bust depicting him is on permanent display in the rotunda in the Missouri State Capitol. In January 2014, the Cardinals announced Musial among 22 former players and personnel to be inducted to the St. Louis Cardinals Hall of Fame Museum for the inaugural class. Nearly two decades after he retired, baseball statistician Bill James and the sabermetrics movement began providing new ways of comparing players across baseball history. In 2001, James ranked Musial the 10th greatest baseball player in history and the second best left fielder of all time. According to BBR, baseball reference, um, he ranks fifth all-time among hitters on the black ink test and third all-time on the gray ink test, measures designed to compare players of different eras. He is also first on Baseball Reference's Hall of Fame monitor test and is tied for second in the Hall of Fame career standards test. Like we said, how is he not unanimous? Uh, I don't know, man. <laughs> we don't get votes yet. We don't get votes. Yet. Yet. <laughs> Maybe one day. Despite statistical confidence, he is sometimes referred to as the most underrated or overlooked athlete in modern sports history. For instance, in his analysis of baseball's under and overrated players in 2007, sports writer Jason Stark said, I can't think of any all-time great in any sport who gets left out of more of who's the greatest conversations than Stan Musial. And then, and then uh, first, pit, first pitch in the fifth game of the 2006 World Series, he got to throw to President Barack Obama. 
Wait, no, two, no, 2006. No, no, no. Um, he threw out the first pitch of the fifth game of the 2006 World Series and delivered the ceremonial first pitch to President Barack Obama in 2009 Major League All-Star game. There we go. I stumbled yep. over that one. <laughs> Stand Man Day was held in his honor by the Cardinals in May 18th, 2008. And in 2010, one of the Cardinals' greatest sluggers, Albert Pujols, whose nickname was El Hombre, said he didn't want to be called the man, even in Spanish, because there is one man that gets mm-hmm. respect, and that is Stan Musial. Mm-hmm. Also in 2010, the Cardinals launched a campaign to build support for awarding Musial the Presidential Medal of Freedom for his lifetime achievement in service. The campaign realized this goal, and on February 15, 2011, Musial was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom by President Obama, who called him an icon, untarnished, a beloved pillar of the community, a gentleman you'd want your kids to emulate. On October 12th, or October 18th, 2012, he made his final appearance at Bush Stadium, riding in a golf cart around the field before Game 4 of the NLCS. He stopped at both dugouts and greeted San Francisco's manager, Bruce Bochy, and Cardinals manager, Mike Matheny. The Cardinals would go on to win Game 4 by a score of 8-3, to but lost the pennant to the Giants. On January 19, 2013, surrounded by family, he died at, he died at age 92 of natural causes at his home in Laud, Missouri. Or Ladue, Missouri. Yeah. On the same day, a fellow MLB Hall of Fame inductee, Earl Weaver. Cardinals wow. owner Bill DeWitt Jr. of the Bush family released the following statement. We have lost the most beloved member of the Cardinals family. Stan Musa was the greatest player in Cardinals history and one of the best players in the history of baseball. The entire Cardinals organization extends its sincere condolences to Stan's family and his children, Richard, Jerry, Janet, and Jean as well as his 11 grandchildren and 12 great-grandchildren. We join fans everywhere in mourning the loss of our dear friend and reflect on how fortunate we all are to have known Stan the Men. Upon hearing the, de- the news of his death, Cardinals fans from everywhere gathered and began an impromptu memorial at his statue outside Bush Stadium. The Cardinals issued a release saying the memorial would be left in place for some time. In a laudatory obituary, the New York Times quoted famed New York manager Leo DeRocher, there is the only one way to pitch to Musial. Under the plate. <laughs> That's saying something right there. If you throw it over the plate, he's going to hit your ass. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Missouri Governor Jay Nixon commented, Stan Musial was a great American hero who, with the utmost humility, inspired us all to aim high, dream big. The world's emptier today without him, but far better to have known him. The legacy of baseball's perfect warrior will endure and inspire in generations to come. St. Louis Mm -hmm. Mayor Francis Slay tweeted, Sad as we are fortunate to have had Stan in St. Louis for so long, we're so glad that Stan and Lil are together again. And he ordered half flag flags at half staff in the city. Yeah. Bud Selig, Major League Baseball has lost one of its true legends in Stan Musial, a Hall of Famer in every sense and a man who led a great American life. He was the heart and soul of the historic St. Louis Cardinals franchise for generations. He served his country during World War II, a recipient of the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2011. Stan's life embodies baseball's unparalleled history and why this game is the national pastime. Thousands of fans braved cold temperatures on January 24th for a public visitation at the Cathedral Basilica of St. Louis. Beautiful building, if you haven't seen it. Where Musial lay in state, dressed in his trademark Cardinal Red Blazer, with a harmonica in his lapel pocket, flanked by a Navy honor guard. A private funeral mass was held on Saturday, January 26th. 
2013 at the New Cathedral in St. Louis, televised locally by KTVI and KPLR, as well as Fox Sports Midwest on uh, cable television. New York's Cardinal Timothy Dolan, who in his first Episcopal post served as an auxiliary bishop of the Archdiocese of St. Louis, was the principal celebrant. And Knoxville's Bishop Richard F. Sticka, Musial's former parish priest, was the homeless. Bob K- Bob Costas gave the principal eulogy, calling him the human hero who, as the years and decades passed and disillusionment came from other directions, never once let us down. And quoting fellow Cooperstown honoree Mickey Mantle, who once said that Musial was a better player than me because he was a better man than me. Yeah. That's a big quote. That's a huge quote, well, yeah. But yeah, I mean, just <laughs> uh, it's got a bunch of roads named after him and stuff too. Yeah, um, up in Pennsylvania, uh, the St. Louis Fire De- Fire Department has a fireboat named after Musial. The cool. Interstate seventy bridge over the Mississippi River between Illinois and Missouri is named after Stan Musial. Um, yeah. And the U.S. Navy. Wait, STEMI is a lifetime achievement award. Is also a thing. And the Navy did something. But it's very vague on what that was. I think. Oh, or maybe we already mentioned it. Oh, the Navy um, was named in his honor. I guess for the Navy. Uh, oh, let's go with this. The state it doesn't say. But good. They got he has a lifetime team warning to Trump. Kelly Buck O'Neill. But going back to He was legit the man. He was the man. Going back to his uh medal of President's Well Freedom. I remember this was during my sophomore year at UNA. I remember watching Stan getting this medal of freedom in uh, on UNA's campus at Bib Graves Hall on TV at Bib Graves Hall, which Bib Graves got canceled, so now it's called something else. I don't remember. Anyway, so I've been watching. Uh, I was watching it live, and like most people, stand up when the president drapes you with the medal of freedom. But Stan, because of his age, he, he sat down when President Obama put the medal on him, and that was fine, you know. And he looked great in his red blazer. You know, well, physical, everybody... physical, physical capabilities, man. Yeah, and you know, it's just it's all good. And then um, going and back to the campaign to get him the presidential medal of freedom. Ow, that cramp. You know, there's this old like the flat Stanley thing, where you take this flat Stanley and you take him in places and travel yeah. and stuff like that. Well, there was a camp part of the campaign to get Stan the Medal of Freedom. They created a flat stand, and I'm showing Patrick the the flat stand in the George Baxi book. It's the little cartoon character of uh, Stan Musial on paper. Yeah, and that was part of the campaign to help get him the Presidential Medal of Freedom. So I thought I wanted to I wanted to add that because I remember vividly watching him get the Medal of Freedom at Bibrace Hall in the UNA's campus on TV at Bibrace Hall. So, you know, that was a cool moment. And just, what can you say about Stan the Man? He was one of the best players of all time and seemed like a great dude. You know, I, I would have loved to meet him 
you know, at least, you know, talk baseball with the guy. The man wanted to play baseball. Loved America. Wanted everybody to get along. And just have a good time. Enjoy baseball. It sounds. Yeah. Yeah. And what more can you ask from the guy? I mean, nothing. <laughs> if, nothing. If, we were in his sho- if we were in his shoes, I feel, I feel, I'm sure we'd feel the same way. Yeah. But that's all I got. That's all I can think about to say about staying usual. What about you, Patrick? I think we got it covered, man. Yeah. Life well lived. Yes. And a legacy left behind that very large shoes to fill. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I think that covers it, man. Um, as always, we appreciate y'all tuning in to us. Thank you. This is a uh, little bit longer of an episode. But there was a lot to lot, talk about. There's a lot <laughs> to talk about with Stan the Man. Let's see. We're at almost two hours, which five or six minutes of that, ten minutes doesn't get cut out. But yeah. Thought um, some supper. <laughs> yeah, I'm about ready. But as always, we appreciate y'all tuning in. Thank um, you. Like, rate, subscribe. Our numbers are through the roof, and we appreciate that. Um, Absolutely. Baseball HIS 101 at gmail.com for suggestions. Um, yeah, and we'll catch you guys next time. I'm Patrick Duvall. And I'm Matthew Carter. Thanks, guys. We'll see you guys the next time. kids had won it. Bobby Thompson had done it. And Yogi read the comics all the while. Rock and roll was being born. Marijuana we would scorn. So down on the corner, the national pastime went on trial. We're talking baseball. Klazuski, Campanella. Talking baseball. The man and Bobby Fella. The scooter, the barber, and the nuke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque. Especially Willie, Mickey, and the Duke. Well, Casey was winning, Hank Aaron was beginning, one Robbie going out, one coming in. Kiner and Midget Goodell, the Thumper and Mel Parnell, and Ike was the only one winning down in Washington. I'm talking baseball, Klazuski, Campanella, talking baseball, the man and Bobby Feller, the Scooter, the Barber, and the Duke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially Willie, Mickey and the Duke. Now my old friend, the bachelor, well he swore he was the Oklahoma kid. And Cookie played hooky to go and see the Duke. And me, I always loved Willie Mann, those were the Well now it's the 80s and Brett is the greatest And Bobby Bonds can play for everyone Rose is at the vet, Rusty again is a Met And the great Alexander is pitching again in Washington I'm talking baseball, like Reggie Grease and Barry Talking baseball, 
Receive a garbage hit and buy the blue If Cooper's town is calling, it's no fluke They'll be with Willie Mickey and the Duke Talking with